You can put your finger in James, and then you want to open up to 1 Corinthians 15, because we're going to reference that chapter um, a little bit later on in the message. So get that set so that you're ready to go, and uh, that way you're not flipping madly, madly and not catching the text itself. And so just get ready, 1 Corinthians 7, or 15 and, uh, and James. Last year, uh, we took time to preach through the book of Ephesians, and I think it was good for us to notice God's redemptive plan of redemption that has been accomplished by the historical work of Jesus Christ, and how God is currently building a whole new redeemed society of called out ones, a.k.a. the church, and how he's doing that in real time in our world today. And that's why we wanted to talk about Ephesians. The church was brought into existence by God. Why? Well, Paul tells us, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That's a noble calling for the church. And so we took time to look through Ephesians. It was God's plan to establish the universal church by making little outposts of his kingdom called the local church in different places, right? Little embassies of the heavenly kingdom all over the globe so that his wisdom and uniting humans in that way would be on display throughout all of the creation, both angelic and humans, right? So we as a church serve one of the most important roles, probably the most important role in all of the world. We as members of the called out community display who our God is and his glory, which means that we have to do this relationship between each of us right. That's why God hates it when the church bickers with one another, right? Because the manifold wisdom of God is on display in our gathering. So we have to get along with one another. And it might be abrasive, but we work towards peace. And that's what Ephesians is about. And we followed that series up with a little four-week series on biblical worship for our Christmas series last year. One of the ways in which the church is distinct in this world is that we refuse to worship anything that is less than God. We will not bow down to any cultural idols. We won't worship anything less than God himself. And we have been given the privilege of engaging God in worship and the true worship of the true God. And we defined worship as this, our the outpouring of our affections, like we're, we're, we're stirred within us and we pour those emotions and those praises out to God. And they're to be offered individually and corporately in spirit and in truth as the reasonable response for who God is and what he has done. It's in view of God's mercy that we offer our lives as living sacrifices. Kind of oxymoronic statement that we're living dead things. We put our lives on the altar and we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And then we let Christ live in us and through us to accomplish his objectives in the world as we're fully submitted to him in, in a life filled with worship. So we went through Ephesians. We went through biblical worship. We had some one-off series, one-off sermons, um, and a short series on biblical sexuality to address some cultural happenings along the way. And then we just finished up our Behold Our God series where we looked at who our God is and how he's revealed himself to us in the Holy Scriptures. And the intention of that has been to fuel us and to motivate us to live distinct Christian lives because we have been thoroughly reminded about how amazing our God is. It was our goal to bolster our confidence in God's ability to see us through the craziness of our world. And now it's September 18th. And we start a brand new sermon series 
And I honestly don't know, this is in, in all honesty, I don't know if I'm more excited or more intimidated to preach this series. On the one hand, I'm very excited. The book of James is so powerful, right? It's filled with power-packed verses, right? Full of memorable one-liners and dozens of practical exhortations. So discovering the text to see what it says and then to passionately preach it, that's going to be really fun and really pretty easy, right? So that's going to be very exciting. But on the other hand, I'm very intimidated, right? Because one of those memorable one-liners warns me that I'm going to be judged with a greater strictness for teaching the contents of this book. So that's pretty intimidating. So there might, I, I was joking with somebody, I was like, there might be some weeks that I show up and just like be quiet for the whole sermon, right? And that will be intentional and it will be awkward, but at least I won't be judged with greater strictness, right? Whoa, these are, these are intense verses, right? So as we make our way through the text of James, one thing will be very clear is that I can't merely teach the word and we all can't merely listen to the word. We must do what it says. We have to. Otherwise, we haven't really heard it. This is a strong and challenging theme that's present in nearly every paragraph of the letter. Do this, do this, do this, this, this. We can't merely listen. We must do what it says. So I was thinking about this a few weeks back, knowing that James was coming. The other day, a friend invited me to drive his 1970 Chevelle Supersport, right? It was pretty exhilarating. That car is known as the king of muscle cars. It had a 454 cubic inch V8 engine with a four-speed manual shifter on the floor. That driving experience was just a little bit different than motoring around in my busted-up 2010 Sonata, right? That's held together with a rope, right? You've seen it. This car is sweet, and I wanted to show it off a little bit, right? So I, I said, can I take it by my house, right? So I brought it to my house, and I wanted to show it off to my boys. So I put the car in neutral. I revved the engine, and they were quite impressed. And I think my neighbors thought, what in the world is this guy doing, right? Right? What I was trying to do was show my boys how powerful the car was. And it sounded great, but it wasn't moving. It made a lot of noise, but it wasn't going anywhere. What I should have done is dropped the car into gear and slowly let up on the clutch and squealed the tires and screamed out of the cul-de-sac, right? That would have been a greater demonstration of the car's power than just revving the engine. And that's what James is trying to communicate to us. We must move from knowing the right thing to actually doing the right thing. We have to put into practice that which we know and then make some progress down the track of Christ's likeness as we move out of the dead-end cul-de-sacs of our old lives. We have learned a lot of content over the last few years, but now we must put that into gear in our lives. 
We must put into gear that which we know and joyfully serve our God during the various trials that we face. James says this, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we want to move from knowing to doing, and we want to do this together as a called out community. The church, so that the manifold wisdom of God can be on display for all to see. What's going on with those people? They live distinct Christian lives. It's different over there. And I hope that we all join together in pursuit of this noble calling from moving to knowing, from moving from knowing to doing. And so let's pray and start looking at our text today to see how far we get. God, we ask that you would help us now. That was just kind of an introduction, and now we actually open up to the text itself and we see what is there before us. And I pray that you would teach us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So look at James 1. 1. And let's see how far we get today. James 1. 1. James. James. First word. Let's stop right there. What James are we talking about here? Right? Who is James? And why should I listen to him? Should it be question mark, right? In the New Testament, there's many Jameses. James I, Right? There's four of them, actually, right? So I want to take you to a confusing verse. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 13. It'll be on the screen. If you want to flip there, you can. But look at this very confusing verse. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, this is after the resurrection. Disciples, apostles are gathered there, not knowing what to do yet. And it says this, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Ah! What James? Right? Like, who, it's like trying to pull this apart. What are we talking about here? Who are these guys? Well, the first James mentioned was James the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. Right? This was one of Jesus' followers. In fact, this is one of Jesus' closest followers and his friends. So we would expect, well, maybe he might write a letter about Jesus, right? Because he was tight with Jesus. He was on the inner circle. But we know that that James didn't write this letter because he was killed by King Herod too early on in the New Testament, right? It's hard to write without a head. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So, if we go back to our confusing verse in Acts, we'll see that James number one is out, right? He's no longer a candidate for writing this epistle. Okay, so let's look at the next James. James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Younger in other passages of Scripture. This James is mentioned four times in the New Testament. Matthew once, in Mark twice, and then once in Luke. And it's interesting because every time this man is referenced, his mother is along with him. He's a true mom mom's boy, right? Look at this, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. This is with the crucifixion of Christ. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, or James, son of Alphaeus, and other texts. 
So what you see is you have James the Apostle on the close inner circle, and then we have James the Younger, or James, that word is smaller, so maybe he's in smaller stature than this other James, or maybe it's just kind of metaphorical, like he's not as in the inner circle. We don't know, but all we do know is that every time he's mentioned in the New Testament, he's with his mom, right? His mother Mary is mentioned every time that he is mentioned. She hung around Jesus as well, but she is a different Mary than Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also different than Mary Magdalene. So it's like, what? whoa, trying to unravel all these people. Confusing, right? But we don't know much about him, and so most scholars generally agree that he did not write the epistle that we see in the New Testament. So James number two is out, all right? So let's cross him off the list. Well, next in our confusing verse, we have James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, all right? So two Judas, right? But the not Iscariot version of Judas, right? There were two Judas, Judases, Judasi? How do you say that? I don't know. That followed Jesus. Judas. Judas, there you go. Thank you. I'm corrected by a fifth grade? Sixth grade. Sixth grade, there you go. Yeah, he's going to preach next week. Um, two Judas that followed Jesus, and one of them betrayed him, which is Iscariot, and then Judas, who was the son of a man named James. Okay, look at this verse, Luke chapter 6, verse 16. And Judas, the son of James, right, is what we get here. Judas, and, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor, right? So Judas, the son of James. We don't know much about this guy except that James, his name was James, and he had a son that followed Jesus. And that's basically all we know. That's all the New Testament says about this James, right? So he's not really a good front runner either for writing this epistle that we're about to preach from for the next few months. So we need to ask ourselves the question, well, then who wrote James, right? The front runner, the one who most scholars identify as the author of this text is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is so compelling. The sermon is really on one word today, James, and then a a final word as well. He is by far the most prominent James in the New Testament. Paul mentions him in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19. When he's writing the Galatians, he says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Jesus had a brother named James, a half-brother named James. And we see this James also early on in the New Testament church in the book of Acts, providing leadership and assuming the main speaking role at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Listen to how prominent he is. In Acts 15 verse 13, it says, after they finished speaking, they had this council and trying to decide some important things for the early church, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Whoa. So after they all finish speaking, then he gives the final say. And then like six verses later, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God and then begins to dictate what should be written in the letter sent out on missionary journeys. It was his judgment. Now, when I say that, it's important because he's very prominent But when I say that, some questions should pop up in your mind. First of all, what do you mean half-brother? Well, we know that Jesus had brothers, right? But they were all of a different father. And we can thank the virgin birth for that. 
But he was the eldest brother of the, of the crew, right? So he had other siblings, but they were of a different father. And another question, we say, well, well, I read my New Testament, Sean. And didn't the apostle John indicate that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him? And then you flip over to John chapter 7, verse 5, and you say, see, here it is. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So if James didn't believe in Jesus, his half-brother, why would he write an epistle that twice references Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ? You can see it in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you can see it in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why would he talk about Jesus being the Lord Jesus Christ if he didn't believe in him? Well, how would you answer that question? What do you think the simplest explanation is? What happened? He started to... Say say it. It begins with a B. Ends with Eve. Believe. Yeah, yeah, good. That's the simplest explanation. There was a point where he started to believe. So some people say, well, he... There's no way he would have written it. Well, Well... Think about you, right? Just like all of us that are currently trying to follow Jesus, there was a time when we didn't follow Jesus, and now we are currently following Jesus, and what happened in between was a moment where our eyes were opened up to the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his glory, and then we start chasing after him. That's what happened to me. That's what happened to all of us that are currently following Jesus. It's like, I want to pursue him, even though I was once dead in my trespasses and sins. Now I want to follow after him. And you say, well, maybe that's the case, but how can you prove this? Is it theoretical and plausible, or is there anything that can confirm this assumption? Because you need to prove it to me. My kids are into, into Mythbusters these days. Remember that old show? I think they're making a new version like for kids now, too. Have you seen the show, Mythbusters? It's pretty cool. Um, If this was Mythbusters, they would say, well, our theory is plausible, but is there anything in Scripture that can confirm this potential belief and this lifestyle change for James, the half-brother of Jesus, who once didn't believe, but now would be writing something that the Holy Spirit would inspire to include in Holy Scripture, right? What might convince him or change his mind about a brother he once did not believe in? And I want to ask you this question. Do you think that a personal encounter with the once dead and buried, but now resurrected and glorified body of Jesus would do the trick? Because if you think that that's the case, check this out. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Flip over there. This is amazing. One of the Apostle Paul's most popular passages of Scripture that he penned in Scripture was the 15th chapter to the Corinthians. So I want you to turn there with me and look at it. Mark it up if you need to, because this is where we get the gospel. What is the gospel? You're going to see it here. He's going to tell us what it is. And this is what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
So something we need to hold fast to. It's not just a matter of what you believe, it's what you do and what you put into practice. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of whom are still alive. So by the way, if you don't believe me, go check out one of the 500 people that saw him, right? Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to put, or, or then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then one to who is untimely born, talking about Paul himself. So here it is. I think that a personalized resurrection appearance to James might have done the trick. James is singled out. He's not one of the apostles yet. He's somebody who didn't believe, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is there, and James is compelled to believe. It's, it seemed to work for the apostle Paul, right? Right? He went from persecuting followers of Jesus to proclaiming Jesus and producing throughout the then-known world, followers of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, went from not believing in him to writing an epistle that has as its central theme belief in him that produces action. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is something that every human on the planet either has to accept or reject. And depending on what you believe about the resurrection of Jesus will change everything about how you live the remainder of your days on this planet. And so the author of this letter that we're going to be studying is a man who was fundamentally changed by the resurrected Christ. He was someone who once doubted, but now at the time of writing this epistle, he believed And now that we have established this as indeed, this is indeed James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, it is all the more remarkable to consider how James identifies himself to his readers. This is phenomenal. And it's one word in in the book, right? James. How does he identify himself? Well, look at James 1.1. James, a servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he says, I'm a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that he uses is doulos. Now, we have a difficulty in translating this word into English because of the historical cultural baggage and injustice that's associated with being a quote unquote slave. So the ESV translators, as well as some other translations, have opted for a more culturally sensitive, appropriate rendering of a servant. We referenced this word last week, but it might be good to highlight it again. A doulos is somebody who is in a perpetual state of being completely controlled by someone or something that exists outside of himself. What James is saying is that he is subservient to and he's controlled by God and by Jesus. that's, That's who he's controlled by. 
That's who he's subservient to. And not just Jesus, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He's the one who demonstrated supernatural authority over all of humankind and all of creation. And he's Jesus, the one whose very name means he will save his people from his sins. And the Christ, the anointed one of God, who was promised long ago, who came and who will come again. That's who James is a servant of. James says, with the first words that come out of his pen, is, hey, look, I am in a perpetual state of being controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am his servant. Now, if you think about that, that's pretty impressive. And I think it's impressive for a few reasons. And I think there's some things that we need to learn from this. One, Jesus wasn't the most popular guy on the block in the first century. People were being killed for following Jesus. In fact, we already said that there was another James that got his head cut off by King Herod. So it's impressive that this James was not willing to shrink back in fear of the swirling threats all around him. And it makes me wonder if after the resurrection and that appearance of Jesus Christ with him, he decided that he would never, ever, ever again be publicly ashamed of his half-brother like he once had been. Maybe he heard Jesus say something like this that has been recorded for us in Luke's gospel. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. James, the half-brother of Jesus, had a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And he knew that Jesus was going to come again in glory. And with the glory of the Father and with the holy angels. And he thinks to himself, as he opens up this letter, I don't care what people might say. I don't care about what kind of trouble this might get me into because one day I will see him again and the next time he appears, he's going to be coming to slay people with a double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth as his robe is dipped in blood and he will be revealed, as the Apostle Paul says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is sobering. And James isn't afraid to announce that he is James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe he's afraid not to open his letter that way. We ought to learn something here about this. Jesus is popular in our culture today, but mostly because his holy name is used for cussing. The true authentic Jesus really has been canceled by our culture. He and his true message of repent, turn from your sins, has been trampled on under our culture's feet as we have headlong, rushed headlong into living however we want to and then disregarding him. But Jesus demands that we acknowledge him as the king of kings. He gets to call all the shots, all of them. But we often say, no, thank you. 
Our culture says this, and sometimes it can creep into us. No, thank you. I think I'm way better at calling the shots than you, Jesus. And we cancel his message. Jesus says things like this. No one comes to the Father except through me. But our culture so often says, yeah, I'm glad that you think that way. That's your truth. But I think I'm going to get to Canada by heading south. You won't get there, but you're entitled to think that way. And talk about a teaching of Jesus that just doesn't fly in our world today. Try this one on for size. Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, anyone, it's open to anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his instrument of torture, his cross, and then follow me. Really? Deny myself? No, Jesus What I need to do is I need to find my true self, and then I need to embrace it, and you need to embrace my true self with me. I need to find the right pronoun to describe myself. Deny myself? No, thank you. I think I'll I'll, I'll pass on the denying myself bit. That just doesn't fly. The true authentic message of Jesus has been canceled more often in our culture than a jet blue flight out of LaGuardia in New York, all right? I, I had to look that up. What's the worst flight, you know? <laughs> Apparently JetBlue, right? But you know what? James doesn't seem to care about that. In fact, he wants to identify himself with the true, authentic Jesus, and so he associates himself with Jesus. He submits himself to Jesus, and then he invites the trouble to come his way. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's impressive. That's hard to say in a world that rejects him. I think we can learn from that. And another thing that I think would be good for us to consider is how he doesn't identify himself. Now, I get that this is an argument from silence, but I do think that it is plausible to keep with the Mythbusters theme And that we might need to hear something that we can apply coming out of this argument of silence. Listen, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He and Jesus had the same mom. They occupied the same womb. They grew up in the same home. They had some of the same genes and some of the same DNA. And although Jesus was a controversial person in the first century, nevertheless, there were some people that were willing to follow him to their death. In fact, there are many thousands that are referenced in the first few chapters of the book of Acts that were willing to associate with Jesus, and they expressed a desire to be organized and led by the apostles. In fact, James was one of the movement's most early prominent leaders. And James could have said something like, as he opens up his epistle, look, I am Jesus' half-brother, you know. I, I have some insider connections. Perhaps I might know him a little bit better than you. I was there when this or that happened in the home. You know, I'm related to him. He's my brother. It's like when you feel more important when you come across a famous person. I took Elijah to the Seahawks-Bears preseason game, and we walked down to the first row before we took our seats up in the balcony, right? We went down there and I started taking pictures of all the players because we're really close to them. And I started sending them to all my friends. I was like, look how close I am to Tyler Lockett. It was like me and 
Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf or Geno Smith. Do we like him yet? Right? And, and I did that because I thought, you know, oh, look, look, I'm associated with these people, right? Sometimes we name drop important or popular people that we know or have some sort of loose, distant connection with because it makes us feel more important. It's really silly sometimes because our connections or our proximity doesn't really mean anything about us. In that situation, I'm like, look at me. I'm taking pictures of guys that have no idea I exist, right? Big deal. But sometimes we take pride in things like this, and so it comes natural for us to try to name drop people that we're loosely associated with because it makes us feel good or that it makes us feel like what we will say next has more credibility. So if someone would ask James, how are you uniquely connected to Jesus? How are you related to Jesus, James? We might expect him to say, if he's a name dropper, oh, I'm his half-brother. But what does he say? James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's impressive. And I think we might need to learn something from that. And let's look at how James identifies himself. That's how he identifies himself. And finally, to wrap up, let's look at who he is writing to. All right? James 1.1. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, this letter isn't just for Jewish people in the first century that were dispersed. We know from the findings of the First Church Council in Acts chapter 15 that all the new Gentiles who came to faith in Christ did not have to observe the Mosaic Law of the Jews. And so James was the leader of that council, and so we know that the intended audience for this letter is broader than just the 12 tribes. This phrase, 12 tribes, is more of a stand-in meaning, all of God's people, this is for you. Every born-again child of God throughout the ages on every continent to which they have been sovereignly dispersed by King Jesus needs to hear and do the whole of this letter. And that's what we're going to take the next few months to try to discover. And we want to try to move from knowing the content of this letter to doing that which we know ought to be done by the time we are done. Let's pray. God, this is a this is a, a fantastic way, a compelling way of opening up this epistle. And I pray that you give us eyes to see wonderful things here. And as we move into a time of communion, all this is made accessible to us because of a sacrifice that was offered on our behalf. So God, I pray that you would meet us now, even in these elements, as we remember what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.